Well, as you can see from the screen, we're beginning a new series today titled Life Under the Sun. And I would invite you to open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes. That is a book found in the Old Testament. And if you're using one of the Bibles from the seat rack in front of you, you'll find this on page 551. Ecclesiastes is a challenging book. It's actually a great book and one of my favorites as uh, I've had the opportunity to study it and preach it through the years. I find that there is a tremendous amount of wisdom and perspective that God gives to us on living this life to the fullest. It's a theme that resonates with just about every human being who lives on planet earth at this moment because we all want our lives to matter. We all want to know that the ordinary day-to-day routines and responsibilities are significant. We all want to know that when we reach the end of our lives, we've done something that will outlive even our days on this earth. And yet Ecclesiastes is a book that we, many of us, believe was written by King Solomon thousands of years ago, and it's a pretty raw and realistic wrestling match with some of those very issues of life. What am I doing with my time? What am I doing with all of my energy? What really is ultimately going to come to pass if I invest my precious time uh, in certain activities or pursue certain endeavors or even enjoy a little bit of leisure or pleasure? Those are some of the questions that Solomon uh, wrestles with. And in, in many ways, this reads like a bit of a personal journal. Now, I won't take time this morning to get into all of the back history or even to try to explain uh, why I think Solomon is the most logical uh, answer to the question, who wrote this book? I think, honestly, it's self-evident. But this book, in many ways, is a little bit like the New Testament letter to the Hebrews. There's always been a bit of controversy about who really wrote it, because if it is Solomon, he doesn't state that just outright. And it's one of those things, honestly, that I wonder about. Why not just say it? Same reason that the letter to the Hebrews doesn't have the author specifically uh, named in the salutation or anywhere in the book for that matter. That actually does something really powerful in my estimation. It focuses our attention not on the author but on the message. I want to begin this uh, series this morning by actually taking time to read through the first two chapters. It's about six and a half minutes of reading. God actually tells us faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I sometimes think we don't actually devote enough time in worship services to reading God's word. So we're going to make up a little bit uh, this morning for any lost time we might have in that particular vein. And though I know it's a little longer portion, I do want you to follow along as I read. And uh, so grab a copy of the scriptures, whether you're using a printed one or you have an electronic version on your phone or your iPad, whatever it is, but uh, you follow along as I read and listen carefully because these are words of wisdom from God Most High. Ecclesiastes 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun also goes down, hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits circuits the wind returns. 
All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow." I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil." Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool... There is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the, in the days to come, all will have long been, long been forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. 
I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment or find the good in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. This also I saw, is, uh, from, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Let's pray together. Father, as we open your word this morning, again, we have great hope and expectation that you will speak. And as you speak to us by your dear Holy Spirit, we pray that you would cut through the despair and frustration that many here are living with, and certainly that all have felt. Would you give us eyes to see eternal truths? Would you give us eyes that see above the sun? That we would recognize that there is good to be found in this world, but it has to be set in right perspective. And we are dependent upon you to give us that wisdom and understanding, lest we spend our days in vain work, in vain pleasure, and in empty living. Great God in heaven, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I read all the way to the end of chapter 2 in part because if we had stopped anywhere else along the way, we would have said, oh, great, kind of sorry I came today. It's not unlike that stretch of road that runs from Price down to Green River when you're trying to get to the, you know, hot spots like Moab or whatever, right? I mean, it's just a barren wasteland. And you drive, and, and you know, if God in his kindness sends a, you know, a little herd of antelope or something along the way to kind of break up the monotony and even desolation of that stretch, you might say, this is the worst stretch of road I've ever been on. Well, you kind of have that feeling as you read through the first couple of chapters of Ecclesiastes. And friends, trust me, we'll have a few other stretches that are going to feel almost as barren. But what Solomon does is to bring us out to these places that really are like a, an oasis of truth. And that's what he does right at the end of chapter 2. So thus we needed to read all the way through some really hard stretches to get to what I would describe as God's really good stuff. And thus the title of this message, Good Things Really Do Come From God's Hand. But the second part of that title is Essential. 
Because many people are just trying to focus on the first part of that, the good things of life, and then wondering why after years of pursuing them or even having them, whether it be experiences or whether it be personal projects or whether it be advancement in knowledge and expertise, they still, still feel empty. And the answer that Solomon is giving us here, and we just read it, and we're going to hear this theme repeated through the series, is that if you disconnect the good things from God himself, then the good things turn to vain things. Don't miss that point. I love what Philip Ryken said. He's a pastor and commentator, and he wrote of Ecclesiastes that it captures the futility and frustration of a fallen world. It is honest about the drudgery of work, the injustice of government, the dissatisfaction of foolish pleasure, and the mind-numbing tedium of everyday life. Think of Ecclesiastes as the only book of the Bible written on a Monday morning. Isn't that great? But it's a great book to read on a Monday morning because it will, if you submit yourself to God's living wisdom, it will reorient your life and it will put wind in your sails and light in your soul. Ecclesiastes is hard to preach and teach in one sense because it doesn't outline cleanly. You know, there's some portions of Scripture where you're like, man, there are the three points. There's a beautiful illustration sitting right in the middle of that passage and, you know, as far as sermon prep goes, it, it comes together easily. Well, this is at least my third time through this book, and I felt as challenged this week as ever, yet at the same time refreshed. So I'm going to try to make it manageable. I know we're covering a lot of territory here, so let's begin. Go back to verses 1 and 2. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Who else could it be but Solomon? There's my, there's my apologetic for why he's the author. Look at verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now, before we look at the word repeated five times there, who is the preacher and why would he use that particular term? Well, the, it's interesting how we arrive at that English translation of a Hebrew word because the Hebrew word could go a couple of directions, and I think this is probably the best choice, but at the same time, it's a word that can just refer to someone who's a collector or an investigator. And that's certainly what Solomon did in the course of his life as he, as he and we will read, come back to this in just a moment, as he was searching out and seeking for meaning and wisdom and all of that. But the word can also refer to a speaker who calls an assembly together. And it's kind of what preachers do. Hey, everybody, we're going to meet Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. Got a few things to say. Will you come? And amazingly, some of you come every week. And so a preacher, in, in the way we think of that, it has more of a formal uh, and limited meaning and identity. But here it just speaks of one who has something really important to say and calls an assembly together. If you want more background on it, we can talk after the service. I think that's enough uh, for right now. But the really important word that he uses coming out of the gate, and he just repeats it five times in this work, is the word vanity. Vanity has to do with something that lacks substance. There's a weightlessness to it. And when you think of vapor or you think of your breath, those would be examples of things that are vanity like i can't help but wonder if vanity stands in direct contrast to the concept of glory and specifically god's glory because the word glory at its simplest definition 
conveys the idea of weight, something that has great substance to it. And so we read earlier in the course of the service, Psalm 19, that the heavens are declaring the glory or the weight of God. Just a spectacular world we live in and a spectacular universe we're a part of. And God breathed or or spoke that into existence. Like the very breath of his mouth is that powerful. Well, that tells us something about the weight of the creator. At the other end of the spectrum from such weightiness is vanity. And based on his extensive knowledge of and experience with life, Solomon begins this wisdom book with an honest observation that something in life is missing. Now look at verse 3 because it leads to a, a, a serious question and he kind of opens the whole book with this. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? The word gain has the idea of profit or even advantage. And the word toil, we, we know, we use it in this way. It speaks of a heavy, burdensome, wearisome labor. Some of you are like, man, I toil all day, every day. And then that little phrase, under the sun, uh, this is the first of 28 times that phrase will appear. And that's just a bit of a poetic way of saying life on planet Earth. Life under the sun, and all of us live under the sun. It's rose, it rose this morning. It is you know, tracing its, its path across the sky again, and uh, we live life under the sun. So this is a really important question for you and me. What is the point of this wearisome life we're living? Why do you rise before dawn every day and come home after dark and work your fingers to the bone? Why are you in school You know, what is the point of studying British literature for some of you? I mean, does Geoffrey Chaucer really have bearing on your life and existence today? And please, someone tell me, what's the point of algebra? (laughs) Geometry, I get. Like, right? I know I offended some of you math types. Algebra, it's divine. (laughs) I agree with you, it originated with him, but I mean, since, since, I'm going to be way off here. You get my point. Why do you mow your lawn? Why do you fight weeds? Why do you plant flowers that are going to die in the pot in six days? Why do you spread mulch? What's the point? Solomon's wrestling with that. And now in verses 4 through 11, which many people actually believe are a poem... uh, ...but that's not as important as what those words actually say. It leads us to this big question, is life just a wearisome cycle? And, it, and Solomon's wrestling with, like, the, I see motion and movement in the world, but to what end? And he gives four examples, really, of, of wearisome cycles. And we, we can understand them, but really at a deeper level, what are they all about? These four endless cycles, we, we live, are illustrative of the fact that we live in a world of wearisome activity. And the first is that generations come and generations go, but the earth remains. The sun, and, and the words here, if, if we were of Hebrew background and training, we could see that Solomon actually uses a word here that kind of describes the sun like a winded runner on a never-ending track. Sun does its thing, did it again today, and you know what? It will tomorrow if God gives us one more day. The third, the wind blows around and around and around and around. And finally, the water cycles from sky to stream to sea and back again. Any of you, 
What grade are we doing the water cycle, you know, poster board in school these days? We, we did that many times. Fourth grade? Is that still the thing? Oh, we're, we're teaching the water cycle earlier. That's a great thing. What's that all about? Well, that's what Solomon is actually wrestling with because we live in a world of wearisome activity and a lot of it just feels like we're kind of chasing our tails. Verse 8, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. So we get into these cycles We're working hard, we're experiencing things, some of which bring us a temporary pleasure, but at the end of the day, we're like, there's gotta be more. That's exactly where Solomon is taking this discussion. Look at verse nine. What has been is what will be, what has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. Do you find yourself bored with it all? You're not the first. God's intention is not to numb your heart and mind through the cycles and repetitious motions of life, but actually to awaken you and cause you to say, there has to be something more than what I see with these eyes and hear with these ears and do with these fingers. And so in verse 12, Solomon goes a little deeper. Is there meaning to my life? Not just like in the big world. And he he begins to conduct an experiment. And I want you to put this in perspective. We won't have time to go in great depth, but if you go back to 2 Kings and really read through the life of Solomon where you see how wealthy and wise he was, I mean, this man had every resource anybody ever needed to conduct the research and the experimentation that he was doing. So when you come to verse 12 and you see, read him saying, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven, I mean, this guy could bring the resources. And so he begins, first of all, by saying, maybe there's meaning in life's knowledge. I applied my heart to seek and to search. He searched, that is, he, he, was, he was searching the roots of of life's matters and exploring, investigating a subject on all sides. And he says, verse 14, I've seen everything. All is vanity and a striving after wind. Well, that's not very encouraging, Solomon. But that little phrase, all is vanity and striving after wind, which we already saw at the beginning of this book will be repeated in verse, not only in in verse 14, but 17 in chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, verse 11, verse 17, and 26, here, here right in the stretch. It's vanity. It's vanity. Look at verse 17. I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I mean, he, he's looking at it all. I perceive that as I came to know that this also is but a striving after wind. In much wisdom, verse 18, is much vexation. That, the word vexation actually has to do with a feeling of anxiety and sadness distress even, and you would think that after searching out these magnificent uh, pieces of knowledge and discovering who knows what and, and being able to just fill his mind and heart with an understanding of how this world works, you would think that would bring him great joy, but he's actually saying it increased 
my sorrow. And it all leaves him asking the question many of us are asking, where is the meaning? Well, it's not found in more knowledge. That doesn't mean you shouldn't pursue knowledge. But knowledge in and of itself is not actually going to answer that big question. So then he goes on a quest for pleasure. Look at chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. He says, I, I, I will test you, that is my heart. I'm going to test my heart with pleasure. Then you encounter little phrases like, enjoy yourself. He speaks of laughter and pleasure. What use is it? He says even, I, I cheered my body with wine. And then he puts in that little, uh, little quick qualifier, I think, that shows he, he was not drinking himself to drunken oblivion. But he is using uh, a kind of stimulant to see if it would awaken something in his soul. I think all of us relate to that. We're, we're people, you may say, well, you know, wine isn't my thing or alcohol of any kind. But no, everybody understands what it is to go search for some kind of stimulant that will give you that little sense of... Phew. Look at the end of verse 3. Till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. And now he begins to touch on a theme that is going to appear like life is really short. You better make it count. Now, what did, what did this quest look like? I do want to jump over to 1 Kings 4 for just a moment. I'm going to summarize a few things very quickly. If you want to turn there, look for verse 20 and then catch up because here we go. 1 Kings 4 verse 20 tells us that under Solomon's reign, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. That's the result of Solomon being king. Skip to verse 22. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. And someone has estimated that the cattle alone that are mentioned in that verse amounted to five to 6,000 pounds of meat per day. Not even Mike Tuzinski has smoked that much meat in his lifetime. Can you imagine... No wonder Israel is so happy. I mean, it is steak every day at this man's table. 1 Kings 4 goes on to say they let nothing be lacking. And yet, Solomon's conclusion in this little section, I said of laughter, it's mad. Pleasure, what use is it? So his assessment of his experiment, Derek Kidner says in his commentary, his, his assessment of his experiment with folly shows that he is disturbed and disappointed. Anytime you take a good gift from God and turn it into an ultimate thing, a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, you've just begun to, to worship in an idolatrous way. As good as filet mignon is, it's not an ultimate thing. And if you try to enjoy your filet mignon apart from a personal relationship with the God who created you and gave you life, eventually you will tire of it. But even a slim gem, when enjoyed in right relationship with the God who gives you life, can be a feast. I'm running ahead a little bit, but I, I want to just reinforce as we go through this, 
Like, don't lose hope. Solomon is saying, I, I thought maybe knowledge, just knowing the world, would, would give me that sense of, oh, it's not all vain. No. Uh, I'll, I'll find pleasure in life's experiences that, that bring us that kind of pleasure. No. Look at verse 4. I use the word enterprise because it's a long list of extravagant building projects that he mentions there. And again, you go back to uh, Kings and just read the account of how Solomon spent 13 years constructing his royal residence. I mean, so much cedar was used in the house that they actually called it the house of the forest of Lebanon. All these, 1 Kings 7 verse 9 says, were made of costly stones. And it not only refers to Solomon's house, it refers to uh, the royal hall of pillars, the hall of Solomon's throne, and Pharaoh's daughter's house is mentioned there, specifically one of his wives. Verse seven uh, tells us that he was establishing business. That's, that's the whole point of buying male and female slaves. There's big work to be done, and so you need workers. Verse eight speaks of his accumulation of resources. And, and even the second part of that, uh, in a sense, Solomon became the patron of arts and entertainment throughout the land, and he hired singers and many concubines. So the enterprise was extensive. And then in verses nine and 10, he speaks specifically of the achievement that some were beginning to assign to him and even recognize about him. And there's a certain prestige of achievement, verse 9, when he says, I became great and surpassed all who were in Jerusalem. Yeah, First Kings 10, listen to verses 23 and following. King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom, and the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present, articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. That's the prestige of achievement, and there's a certain prestige or a certain pleasure in that kind of achievement that he mentions in verse 10. My heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward. And you know, from our perspective, it seems like things are going really well for Solomon. The people are happy. They're well fed. The, the nation is secure. Other really powerful people are coming just to learn from Solomon and to give tribute to him. And I mean, what more could this country ask for? And yet the man who sits on the throne at the center of that is living an empty existence because all the while, if you go back and read through the story of Solomon, he is drifting further and further and further from the Lord. And 700 wives and 300 concubines and, and 40,000 horse stalls and more gold than, and silver than he knows what to do with are not enough because Solomon, through his life, became disconnected from his God. And beloved, some of you are actually on the same trajectory And maybe you're here today saying, why is my life so empty? Why do I feel so frustrated? Why is, is this ongoing battle with despair and discouragement so real to me? Perhaps you, like Solomon, have disconnected from your God and creator. So it's not 
more knowledge or pleasure or enterprise or achievement that's gonna bring you to a place where you say, now I've found meaning. No, the meaning is only found in God. Now go to Ecclesiastes 2 verse 12. What is the point? Well, Solomon's gonna be, begin making a few early points here. And th- this is, I, it's a little comical, honestly, when you read verse 12. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. What can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. So first, uh, first little point of conclusion in this journey, we're not really to the big most important point, but there is some advantage in being wise. And if you gotta pick between being a wise man and a fool, go with wise. Fools have really hard lives. So that seems to be one conclusion that he is drawing. But then you come to verse 14 uh, and and the next several verses. uh, The the wise person has his eyes in his head. He, He can see the world around him. The fool, he's just like a blind man stumbling around in darkness. Yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Well, any advantage that wisdom gives you is tempered by the reality of coming death. Let's close in prayer. We're all going to die. What a great day it was at Gospel Hope. Well, no wonder he says in verse 17, so I hated life. Because what's done under the sun is grievous to me. I don't like the thought that I'm going to die. Then look at the next interesting little conclusion, verses 18 through 23. I'm trying to summarize this, but... You know, he almost, he seems to be saying there's no enduring to hard, no enduring advantage to hard work. And he's wrestling with the fact that there's a generation coming behind him that's probably going to inherit all of his stuff. And what are they going to do with it? Yeah. And actually, some of them did. Oh, what a mess that history is from after Solomon when the kingdom divided. And wow, Israel and Judah, they did suffer. Every generation wrestles with this, though, don't they? Some of you are just worn out. Listen to your grandparents talk about the good old days and how your generation is soft and weak and you don't know the meaning of hard work and sacrifice and saving. Yeah, I read something recently that was, you know, sobering. The children now love luxury. They have bad manners, contempt for authority. They show disrespect for elders. They love chatter in place of exercise. Children are now tyrants, not the servants of their households. They no longer rise when elders enter the room. They contradict their parents and tyrannize their teachers. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that was Socrates 2,400 years ago. (laughs) Gives a little perspective, doesn't it? What are we to make of all this frustration and despair? Jump over to Ecclesiastes 12. Look at verse 11. I know we, but this is a really important truth that has bearing on how we even read and, and interpret the whole book. Here Solomon says, the words of the wise are like goads or prods, like cattle prod. 
And like nails, firmly fixed are the collected sayings. And notice this, they are given by one shepherd. Now we're fast forwarding it, but Solomon, through all this frustrating quest, is actually going to reach a point where he, he has to come face to face with the fact that as powerful as he is, he's not actually the ultimate king. And he's not actually looking for the ultimate king as much as he needs a shepherd just like you and me. And I do appreciate the fact that several English versions, including the English Standard Version, have capitalized shepherd because that reminds us we're talking about a divine person, aren't we? And who is the good shepherd? It's Jesus. Solomon needed Jesus. You and I need Jesus. We'll come back to that in just a moment, but notice the words of the wise are like goads. They're like prods, and those are designed. If you, some of you grew up on a ranch or maybe even worked, you know, with cattle, and um, they need to be prodded. Sometimes they don't want to go where they need to go, and so there are pointy sticks, some there are electrified sticks and whatever, and, and, and you poke that animal hard enough and they'll eventually start moving. Well, the words of the wise, God's words are, are prods in the same way. They get us moving places we would not want to go because we're stubborn, we're sinful, we're foolish, we're lazy. There are a variety of reasons there, but the, the words of the wise are like goads, and second of all, they're like nails, firmly fixed, the construction site is such a beautiful example of that. And on the safe side of the fence, just before you leave, just look at the framework there and notice how many nails have been driven in to key points. They didn't glue that thing together. They didn't use rubber bands. They used nails. And God's wisdom is likened unto critical, vitally important nails in a construction project because God wants the framework of your life to hold together when these distresses and difficulties come along. And he gives us his truth as these nails to build with. And so really, in conclusion, we're fast-forwarding it here to verse 24. Thank you for being patient along the way. But let's open the first box of nails because even though there have been a few little nuggets along the way where we're like, oh, okay, that kind of makes sense and that makes it seem a little bit better. No, Solomon's been saying in all of life's experiences, I've been disturbed, I've been disappointed, I, I don't like some of what I'm experiencing, I've despaired at other moments, but now there really is a big turn. Look at verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink. And I wish uh, the, the English translation, rather than saying find enjoyment, I think that's, that, that really isn't broad enough because the, it, more, it reads in a more literal fashion, find the good in his toil. There's nothing better for you and me as human beings than to eat and drink and find the good in our toil. And then, this is critical, this also I saw is from the hand of God. Now, he, he, he's not even really talked about God. Hasn't introduced theology, hasn't talked about, you know, in, any of the, the truth we might have expected to at this point, but now he connects it directly to God. And here's big nail number one. 
Life's good things come from God. Now that doesn't mean they're reserved only for good people because he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Good and bad people alike get the benefit of rain in God's world. Good and bad people alike get the benefit of all kinds of things in God's world. But what, what differentiates between uh, people who are tracking the right way and people who will end up in an in a ultimate place of despair and hopelessness is that one group acknowledges there is a God who gives good, and another group's like, no. And that's where Solomon is taking his verse 24. And then verse 25, life's good things can only be enjoyed as we are rightly related to God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Who can find the good? Apart from God, who can really? Now, that doesn't mean you'll never have a good meal because all of us have. That doesn't mean you won't have moments of good or joy. I mean, because even the, hard, the hardest of hearts of, of a non-religious person still finds lots to laugh about, pleasures in life, relationships to celebrate. I mean, there, there's joy in God's world. But apart from Him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment and because of the direction of of Solomon's writing, he's really talking about ultimate things. And then the last little thought in verse 26 uh, that I'd like to kind of summarize in this way is that life's best things come to those who serve God. And, And what you have to remember is that we're not just talking about nice houses, nice cars, nice clothes, nice you know, family, nice this, nice that. We're, we're ultimately talking about the good things that endure for eternity, and we'll get to that. But look at verse 26, because Solomon uh, establishes two categories. To the one who pleases him, and the, it's the idea of lives life in the presence of, literally before the face of God. So the one who lives his life or her life in the presence of God, God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy. He's bringing those things to your life. That's what makes your food and your drink and your work and your marriage and all of life so significant. But to the sinner, that is the one who who refuses to submit to God, who disobeys the divine commands, who, who disregards the law of God, that, that's who the sinner is. He has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. He hasn't filled in all the blanks, but he's basically said there's coming a time if you thumb your nose at God through your life, there's gonna come a moment where everything you've accumulated, all the good stuff, all the short-term pleasures, it's all forfeited and you carry nothing with you for the duration of your existence. Terrifying, isn't it? That's loss. That's tragedy. That's a scenario to despair over. But it doesn't have to be that way. Yesterday afternoon, I had just returned to my desk to work on this sermon when Kristen came back in the house and said, something is wrong with the car. If you know me, I mean, this is like the bane of my existence. So I go out. She told me what happened, but I got to try it for myself, right? Not because I don't believe her, but it's like I need to see this. 
And I turned the ignition key, and sure enough, just like she reported, I mean, the dashboard lit up like a Christmas tree. And I mean, every light there is blinking at me, clicking noises uh, that you don't want to hear are, you know, coming also out of the dashboard. We actually have, you know, an old-fashioned kind of clock on the dashboard, and the hands on that clock are spinning around. I mean, truly, it, it was like, wow. The only way it could have been more exciting is if Christmas carols had begun to blare through the speakers. Now, Volkswagen has designed the dashboard of many of their vehicles, and we drive a, you know, 2013 Passat, they, they've designed the dashboard to do this when your battery is faulty, if not dead. And the flashing lights and the spinning hands of the clock are saying, you have no power. Can't drive the car. And beloved, the futility and frustration of life is God's way of showing us that we are missing something if we've disconnected from him. It was a temporary frustration. Now, thankfully, easily resolved. I went down to a local store, bought the right size battery, brought it back, disconnected things, put the new battery in. Would have been done in about 15 minutes, but I dropped the long extension tool into the bottom of the engine. So if you know how these things are designed, you got to get under there and unscrew that little, you know, protective shield underneath and banged my head <laughs> once. Grr. You know, God is very happy for those of you who try to live your life apart from him to let you keep knocking your head, seeing scary lights. He's trying to get your attention to say, will you stop living life apart from me? I created you to be in relationship with me. I'm your God. You need a shepherd. I'm the universe's greatest shepherd. God was kind enough to let Solomon go his own way for many, many years. I actually believe, like many others, that Solomon wrote this at the end of his life as part of an apologetic for his faith, and even, I think it really captures, a humbled, repentant heart. And you know, that's the very point that God wants to really lead some of you into. I love the words of Dwayne Garrett, wrote a really helpful commentary on Ecclesiastes, and he says, this passage is not a contradiction to the gospel, but a call for it. The world is in bondage, and humanity is unable to explain, to find satisfaction in, or to alter it. Only the word who came into the world, that's a capital W-O-R-D, only Jesus who came into the world from above can open the way of understanding and escape. And I can't help but think that even today and prior to this morning, but the good shepherd has actually been prodding some of you. Now you haven't recognized it as the prodding of a shepherd who loves you, who laid down his life for you 2,000 years ago, but he loves you enough to make your life frustrating and difficult, to even let you swerve into a ditch of despair. 
because he wants you to come to the end of the the end of your resources. He wants you to come to a place where you're like, I can't do this. And turn to him. Took Solomon many years to actually reach that point. I pray it won't take any of you any longer than this moment. And perhaps the good shepherd is prodding you today. Don't you love John 3.16? This is the answer to those desperate, despairing souls like Solomon is to look above the sun into eternity where you begin to find out that God the Father in perfect concert and unity with God the Son and God the Holy Spirit laid out this plan where he would send his one-of-a-kind son into the world. And as John 3.16 tells us that whoever believes in him that is in the Son should not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him, through him, not knowledge, not pleasure, not enterprise, not anything we could plug in there, but through him might be saved. And the shepherd who speaks this wisdom, even in Ecclesiastes, is the shepherd who stands before you today and says, come to me. Would you bow your heads with me, please? In just a moment, we're actually going to move to the Lord's table. But before we do, I think it is fitting and appropriate that we pause and that you, friend, turn to the Lord by faith and, and maybe examine the frustrations and despairs and difficulties that you've been living with and say, are these the shepherd's proddings to get me to come back to him? And if you sense that they are, then would you simply believe his word? That if you will come to him, he will forgive your sin and grant the gift of eternal life. He will shepherd you out of the vanity of the life you are living and into the glory of of salvation. You can pray quietly where you are and call upon him even from your heart. God, I've been living life under my own power, utilizing my own wisdom, my own resources, and I've made a mess of things, but today I come to you. I lay all of that down and I beg you, rescue me. Would you pray that kind of prayer? Will you? Can you? Those of you who have known the Lord would say, you know, I'm, I'm confident that I am his child. But I've been drifting from him and I can see the trajectory of my life would lead to a place I don't want to go. And at this moment, oh God, I come back to you Please forgive me, have mercy on me. Forgive me for my pride. Forgive me for my self-protection. 
forgive me for all of those things that put me at the center and I bow again on this day and yield my heart in full submission. You are my king. You are my shepherd. That drift of your soul on this day may not be deadly at this moment, but it will be deadly if you don't humbly correct 